0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 270 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's such a nice sunny day today that I'm recording this intro... Uh, On my porch and uh, if you think the sound is a bit different that's why I'm using my portable device Uh, anyway uh, let's get to it let's not uh, waste any time in this episode my guest is stand-up comedian Anthony Geno and we will be discussing uh, psychedelics as well as comedy in general Let's go. So thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, dude. How are you?
0: Great. Uh, Can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and and what you do?
1: Yeah. So uh, my name's Anthony. I am a stand-up comedian and I just self-released my first album, which is a show that I had toured around the world. I started out in Melbourne and then took it to Edinburgh, London, um, Stockholm and a couple other places. Um, And so recorded and put it out. Um, And then the way we got in touch is um, there is quite, there's a section on the show about, you know, dealing with anxiety and meditation and finding magic mushrooms through that.
0: Have you noticed a difference in telling the jokes regarding uh, the magic mushrooms in different parts of the world?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think um the, the places that I I have done it the most being Melbourne, London and Edinburgh. Um I haven't really noticed too much of a difference. I do know that in Stockholm when I was performing there, I was asked a couple of times by different comedy nights to to not talk about drugs at all um, because their their culture around um, prohibition has been so successful that um, they find that what touring performers don't really know is that the cultural norm around talking about drugs is is a lot less common and therefore they just don't have the same literacy. People don't
0: relate as much.
1: It, not so much as that they, they taboo or they look down at it. They just don't understand. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting, definitely.
0: That means that if you go there again, that's all you should talk about because then you would um, stick out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I, 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 I think... Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and it's a really interesting thing to think about in terms of, like, the purposes that that comedy can serve, right? Because I think you're right, there is a degree of of, um, obligation to, like, introduce people to new ideas in in a kind of setting that can feel less harmless. It's also a lot more difficult to get people to relate. And so I think in some respects if I had a lot of stoner material, which I don't, I, I've not done that as much and I don't find that necessarily as interesting to talk about on stage. But if I did, I think you're exactly right because people, even if they haven't done it, they've got, you know, movies and cultural reference points that they can cling on to. Whereas I think something like psychedelics is a lot is a lot more um, new to a lot of people and I'm not sure how much they'd, they'd get the the reference points.
0: What I think is interesting when it comes to movies and TV shows that feature psychedelics in the plot somehow is that before I ever tried psychedelics uh, and then I compare it watching those kind of films and TV series after I tried it, I don't really know where they got their references or jokes or, or uh, how they show how it is because it doesn't fit with what psychedelics really is when you do it like and one classic example is that you like uh, see maybe like a pink elephant jump through the room or stuff like stuff like that that would never happen on psychedelics you know
1: yeah yeah the the whole like the the cartoonification of um things I I think yeah there are some classic examples of things they do right like there's the slow-mo like vocals of people talking which is obviously not something that I've at least ever experienced I obviously the way you interact with time is different but it's not like you ever hear someone like this like you would in a movie you know um and I think that the whole blue haze, I don't know where that came from. I, I've again not something I've ever experienced, but i I also think that it's it's that classic situation of because the the psychic psychedelic experience can be so removed from what people's reference points are. it's really hard to explain to somebody. Let alone show that in a two-dimensional medium. I think the difficulty with film representation of it is that they that a lot of the the reference points are really hard to capture. You you feel them and experience them. You can't. It's it's hard to experience or or explain secondhand.
0: It reminds me of this joke that Bill Hicks said about people who. Uh, Take LSD and jump off a building, uh, because he says, uh, "If you think you can fly, why don't you take off from the ground?" <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, I do love that that bit, and and also his his um his his bit of like enlightenment, uh, like the 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 uh, like the I guess the awareness that you can get from it. Um, and I, I think for me, it was, it was one of the first times I'd seen or heard about um, about psychedelics talk like that, which is, again, one of the reasons that to some extent it, it, it is one of the good things you can do with comedy is introduce people to new ideas in, in a way that they are more willing and able to listen to them.
0: So have you done a lot of open mics?
1: uh yeah obviously so obviously that i think that's that that's how everybody sort of starts out um and then moving from australia to the uk you start that all over again so yeah done your fair share
0: and uh, how is how is that uh did it i mean it must have been a few times where it was disastrous or like is it uh, nerve-wracking or what's it like
1: dude absolutely all of the above i don't think anybody ever gets Good at comedy without sucking a few times, and I think even the best comedians—it's—it's it's one of those weird, th- weird things in that because it's a, a live medium, it, it changes every time, and so you even the best comedians with the best jokes that you know work ninety-nine point nine percent of the time will still occasionally have that weird one that doesn't work, um, and. I think that for that reason, it's when you start out, and I think when you start anything new, you're more nervous because you don't have the reference points or the belief that you can do it. And so everything that happens that isn't great makes up a bigger percentage of your experience in that thing. You know, if I've done 10 gigs and one was bad, that is 10% of my overall comedy experience. And I go, oh, maybe. Maybe I'm 10% of the times not good at this. But then once you've done a thousand gigs and you do one bad gig every 500, that's a much smaller percentage. So you don't take it as personally, I guess.
0: Is it hard to uh, be quick on your feet when it concerns like hecklers?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it all depends on, again, the the night, and that's why I love the live thing, right? Because if things are going well and, and the jokes are landing, you're usually, like, really in the moment, so it's really easy to respond and just just um, come up with something that, that works in the night. Um, but if the night's not going so well and you don't feel the support of the audience, um, it gets very easy to get... Uh, to get a bit more nervous and 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 not be able to think as quickly on your feet um but i i'm a very big fan of not having pre-prepared things to respond to hecklers with i i know um some comedians have you know the standard like oh i don't come to your workplace and tell you your shit at your job or whatever the fuck like or, or slap the dicks out of your mouth, or shit like that. Um, I, I am a big believer in in like, um, in responding live and and in the moment and and letting that fall where it may.
0: I remember one time many years ago, I I ended up in a stand up show in Middlesbrough in England, of all places, and uh, the the stand up comedian there. Uh, it wasn't an open mic, so it was somebody who actually got paid or had gone that far into his career anyway. But he he did uh, something I never forgot, because he did a major mistake when he came out on stage. And he, the first thing he said was, like, hello, everybody, are you ready to laugh? Oh, <laughs> no. The whole audience turned and he, I mean... I mean, he could never, he could never recover from that. And as soon as I heard him say that, I was like, "Oh no, that's a really bad thing to say."
1: <laughs> uh, dude, Middlesbrough is, is, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a rough kind of place. It's a random kind of place to have ended up, and and not the sort of place that I. Um, it's the sort of place that you have to perform more than you enjoy performing. I think. Um,
0: I would call myself like a connoisseur of stand-up comedy and uh, one of those people who uh listen and watch it so much that I can like uh uh, uh I st- I even studied the techniques and the way they uh, hide the twist or whatever the joke uh, structure they have you know like I'm on that level but I I I've, I've never uh and I've always thought I should try it, but I just never got around to it. And uh, so I'm th- um, I have, uh, that's why I was asking if you think, so I was thinking, like, should I try it? It's not really something I, I don't think I would, I don't want to go for it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I imagine you are like going for it, like trying to maybe make a living from it, or maybe you are making a living from it. But I mean, like, just for fun, just try it a couple of times, see what it's like.
1: Dude. <laughs> I would say um, give it a couple months after after the, the lockdown things and the pubs are open because in the first couple months, it'll be like everybody who does this for a living will be fighting for stage time. But the minute that that is over, I would say just do it. Like that's how I started. I I, I just enjoyed comedy and was like, fuck it. Like, mate, can I do this? Um, Actually most people say that they were inspired to start by seeing somebody do really, really well. Whereas for me, it was seeing somebody do awfully. And I just thought, well, fuck it. If they get to do that, why can't I do whatever, like whatever I do will be better than that. Um, And that's how I started. And and, and I think most people, it's definitely like a learn on the job kind of thing you know there, there's nobody who from the first time they get on stage is fucking killing it and then do it for the rest you know they everybody gets better as I go
0: yeah I do have an advantage that in my day job I uh, often have to talk uh, do public uh, talking or public performing in that sense but uh, not for entertainment but uh, and uh, so I don't think that will be a problem it's just that uh, you know uh, they need to laugh, <laughs> otherwise.
1: <Yeah. you> know. <laughs> oh, dude. And and I I think um, public speaking, like I, I've never loved public speaking and now I find it a lot easier. Um, I think public speaking is a breeze because compared to comedy, because like if, if you're just delivering a message or a speech or you know what I mean, um, you talk and then, you finish and people clap and there are no real cues for everybody else that that says, oh, we all think this is going as it should or or this is going shit. Whereas in a comedy club, you deliver your joke, they're silent and either they laugh and everybody knows, yeah, he did, he did good or they don't and everybody knows he fucked up, you know.
0: I also have this thing where I'm thinking like maybe, I don't know if you've tried it. But I'm also thinking about if I would do it, I just go up like completely uh, with no material and just wing it. Have you ever done that? (laughs) Um,
1: I've seen a lot of people do it. It's fucking hard. And I think it's very easy to underestimate how long five minutes is when you don't know what you're going to say. I will say, though, that it kind of comes full circle, right? Like when I started out, I, I tried to do that. Um, and I would say to begin with, I reckon it's not the best idea. Although like you can do improv classes and that, that like you can learn improv as a thing, but it, it, it's, a, it's a slightly different thing to, to you know, stand up. Um, but then, you know, after a couple years, what I I did realize is that if I tried to write the jokes word for word before I got on stage, that the voice wasn't quite as natural. So now I've got somewhere closer to what you're talking about where I, I have been performing long enough and I, I kind of feel like I know my stage voice well enough that if I have an idea that is funny to me and I want to talk about, I will just have like the, the, the points I want to get to, but I won't know what the jokes are. And then I hope that I panic myself into the most authentic punchline when I'm on stage, um, which is, is nerve wracking. And again, um, I think it's a lot easier to do that when you have done comedy enough that if you have a bad gig, you know it's not because you're bad at comedy, it's just a bad gig. I think there's no way I would have had the confidence to do that when I first started out, you know,
0: one comedian that I, uh, I think like maybe thirty percent is winging it, but uh, he's very skilled at making it sound like everything is on the spot, and that I think is Dave Chappelle. It sounds so natural when he is performing that it's almost like he, nothing's pre-written, although it, at least half probably is.
1: I look, I don't know, I don't know Chappelle's um, methodology. <laughs> to say with any authority but watching his specials i would say 90% of that and and particularly like the recorded specials you see i think 90% of that he's performed before a lot um
0: oh yeah i i was thinking more like when you watch those like that's been recorded uh, when he's just doing clubs they 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 seem so uh, improvised
1: yeah and and i think i think I think that's probably, again, at this point, completely speculating, but I think it's probably a combination of things. I think I think, likely a little bit what I was saying before in that he roughly knows what he wants to say and and he's thought about the idea, but he's never said the joke. And so then finding the joke on stage makes it feel really, really authentic and like it, it's you're saying it for the first time because you are... Um, but it's, it, it's, it's yeah, it's somewhere between, I guess, improvised and, and written in, in that sense because you've, you've not said that ex- exact joke before but you roughly know why you think the idea is funny. Um, I think it's also, again, a, a thing of, like, the longer you perform and the, the, the better you know your stage voice, the easier it is to be funny without relying on um, the craft of comedy and I think the craft is sort of where where you can start. You, no matter how funny something is, you can see the nuts and bolts. Whereas I think the, the longer you do it and the better you know your voice, the the more you can sort of remove some of that. And then then there then there's two other things. One is one is that a percentage of it probably is improvised. You're probably right. Um, and then also there is a, there is a trick that is quite good and that works quite a lot, which is. Dave Chappelle talks to the audience a lot in a way that if you if you've performed a bit you can roughly predict sort of where audiences will go with sort of questions particularly if you know you have a topic you want to get to and so if you do that and then you get to a topic that you want to talk about that you do have jokes on people feel like oh that they just had that joke out of that conversation but actually that conversation only served as a vehicle to get to the joke you wanted to tell.
0: And then there's also this style, there's certain, I think Chappelle is one of them, but there's others also where they uh, they can say something that maybe is not funny, but their voice is funny <laughs> somehow. And I don't know what you, if you know what I mean, like the way certain people say something, it just sounds funnier than other people.
1: Oh, 100%. I, I think um one of the first bits of advice I got and I, I, I think is the most simple but fucking brilliant description of what a comedian should do was uh, a guy said to me, there are two ways to be a comedian. You can say funny things in a normal way, or you can say normal things in a funny way. And I think that's it, right? I think there is, um, there is a performance element and a, a knowing your character and, 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 Delivering something that is normal in a way that people are finding congruous and are shocked by, and and that's funny, or it's saying something that is completely ridiculous, but in a way that people understand the dumb logic, and that that's funny. I I think um yes, I think you're right. I think sometimes you can be completely funny without ever having actually said anything funny.
0: And uh, I know this is could be a. a, a... A problem in North America but have you noticed anything when you're been performing regarding this like cult of outrage
1: yeah i i um look, I think that that's, that that's something people talk about right around the world I think th- there are specific examples that are better and worse but I think as a whole in general it makes comedy better for performers to be continually reevaluating and pushing for innovation. I think um, if you look at the comedy of, say, you know, the vaudeville era and you look at how, like, a lot of people when they watch that now will be drawn to how offensive that is and how you couldn't say that today and blah, blah, blah. But when I watch it, the thing i I think is is super prevalent is just how boring a lot of that is like everybody's said all those jokes before, and it's not offering anything new and I think in most cases the the low hanging fruit that that um that because here's the thing right like we we spoke a bit about chappelle and and Bill Burrs, another one who had a really massive special that people were unhappy with. They still had massively financially su- successful um, careers. Nobody's stopping them performing. Then they're, they're not being censored. So, so if you do it well enough and there's an audience, you can do it. What, what the people who aren't able to perform the jokes they want to are the people who don't have the skill to do those jokes. And I think pushing the the boundaries for there and and making people do something interesting as opposed to something that has been done and something that is obvious is good for comedy and good for creativity.
0: Can you uh, su- survive on on comedy now? Have you reached that kind of level?
1: Um, no. I I uh, I made a, a decision a couple of years ago, probably three or four, um, that I would keep a day job and performing because essentially at the time that it is possible for you to maybe make a living off comedy, you kind of have to give up everything else first and hope that comedy works out. Um, And I was worried that I, you know, the, the lifestyle and mental health implications and all of that, were not worth it for me. And so for me, um, keeping my day job between festivals, performing at the festival, it gives me the freedom to do the shows that I want to do and be funny in the way I want to be funny. And then if that goes well and and I make some money, good. If the reviews are good, good. But at no point am I risking my living. Um. Yeah,
0: I was thinking, like the standout comedian is, in a sense, the oldest profession. If you look back all the way back to uh, uh, the Stone Age, or whatever, when they had the, uh, you know, the oral tradition and the shaman speaking to the tribe. Uh, I mean, the the lineage goes from back from that, you know, through history. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I think um, yeah. I do think that there is. I mean, I don't think all like there there is comedy that is just absurd and just funny and just clowning and. But I guess that also has has harks back to the jester, a little bit, um, which is again quite quite a old tradition. I think um, yeah. I do think there is there is a lot of tradition around humor and public speaking
0: um because I mean it, it must be something that's deep in our core because considering all the different choices we have for entertainment sitting down watching somebody speak is a bit like boring if you come I mean you could watch a film you can play video games and that so it must be something that's attractive to the human soul because we've done it for hundreds of thousands of years really all the way back uh, that that's what I'm thinking
1: I think you're right, and I think it's largely born out of, uh, born out of a, a want to understand and share ideas. I think I think it it, it is stand up comedy is largely a a, a one way conversation, right? And I think there is there is a huge degree to which we all like to imagine what we would say in that situation and we all like to hear, we feel like we're getting an insight into somebody else's lives in a way that cinema doesn't give because there is a complete lack of, like it's a completely subconscious lack of authenticity, right? But when it's a person on a stage saying a thing that feels real in a way that that I think we feel like there's a lot more to learn from subconsciously perhaps
0: what kind of uh, comedians have inspired you uh, uh of uh, the ones that have existed be- before you and i mean contemporary
1: oh dude I, I think i think so many like i i genuinely think um i genuinely think every time you see a comedian doing well you can learn from them even if it's not the sort of comedy you would do um and so I think when I first started out, like the first stand-up show I ever saw was I found a VCR of like Eddie Murphy Raw, I believe. Um, when I was like maybe 12 or 13, it was like my parents' VCR and I chucked it in. And th- so that was hugely influential. And then as I got older, Richard Pryor and um, George Carlin, uh, Bill Hicks, um and then I think... Uh, more recently, there's like English people like Simon Amstel and and uh, Ricky Gervais, Dave Chappelle, obviously. Um, but then even even more recently, I think what Hannah Gadsby did was was really fantastic. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think I think you can always learn from people doing something really well, even if it's not the thing you'd do.
0: One comedian recently I discovered that uh, has that has a really interesting technique and it's almost like he's he's making joke surgery because it's one word wrong and the joke falls apart and that's uh isn't Anthony Jeselnik do you know him
1: oh yeah 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 Anthony Jeselnik is um yeah he's he's an interesting one because he's uh he's in in many ways like um very different to to most of the most popular comedians around at the moment, and the most most comedy at the moment is rooted in storytelling and um, rooted in in this idea of sharing authenticity. I, I think there's, that that that's kind of most of the the most popular comedy shows you'll see at the moment, and 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 Anthony Jeselnik kind of does. Does old fashioned joke book jokes that are shocking, like completely shocking, um, and you know that that's where it's going, and yet it's still kind of hard to guess where he's going to twist it?
0: One thing I like, uh, if I, how I rate if I hear good comedy is if they speak about a topic and uh, uh, I get to think about a new perspective that I never considered before even if it doesn't matter if the perspective is wrong uh, it's just uh, like a new perspective uh, I think that's in, in, in that way I often uh, watch stand up comedy not really to laugh but uh, you know to learn or get new ideas that are uh, you know uh, more uh, into philosophy or wisdom or, or stuff like that
1: yeah, I think I think that's a fucking cool thing, dude. And I think that's one of the the ways that I um I started getting into stand up comedy. And I think I have learned and grown a lot as a person from from that um insight into other people's way of thinking. Even even if it, at first you don't agree with them, or maybe you never agree with them. But I think if you watch enough stand up comedy, particularly. Particularly open mic and like amateur stand up comedy, when maybe not all of them are very good at hiding their um their world view and and their their trauma. Um, I think I think you you do learn a lot about people from from hearing them talk like that. Yeah,
0: the reason I mentioned also w- winging it before was that uh, if you because uh, I've listened to it quite a lot, if you listen to the Bill Burr podcast, uh. And then, if I watch his uh, recorded stand-up specials, I don't think they're as funny as his uh, podcast, which is completely improvised. Uh, he doesn't like, uh, well, from the most part, anyway. Um, whereas, the, I guess it's because he has the podcast, you get used to him winging it. So when you watch him do the stand-up show, it just seems so stiff.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of framing it and understanding it. I would also argue context is huge, right? Because in the setting of a podcast, making you laugh is kind of a B plot. It's not the A game. Like his main goal in the podcast is to be entertaining and to 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 take you through whatever he's talking about, and the moments where he's funny is genuinely funny and it is surprising because you never know what when it will come it's it doesn't have the same rhythm of stand-up which is you know a joke is coming every so beats um and i think the the element of surprise and being caught off guard makes things funnier
0: have you considered yourself to to do a podcast i mean it's quite common now these days for comedians to have a podcast.
1: Yeah, it is super common. I have considered it. I, and and do you know what? I I mean, I, I thought that I might start one this year, but I really, like you said, there's a lot of comedians with podcasts, and because of that, I've been exposed to a lot of podcasts that... Uh even if they have a theme, they they're um i I haven't enjoyed them as a, a listener I, I there's a lot of podcasts I do enjoy as a listener, but there's a lot from comedians in particular that I haven't, and I don't want to do something for the sake of doing it. like if I invest the time in recording it and asking a guest to come on and putting it out there and asking people to listen to it, I want to do it because I know that it offers something that is good and that is worth people's time.
0: Yeah, it's true. When I think about it, the only one I really enjoyed was the Bill Burr one. The other wo- otherwise, it's better to listen to a podcast about this, a certain theme or topic. And even though, like, uh, I don't listen to it so much, but even though Joe Rogan is a comedian, his podcast is not really, It's uh, not making it to be funny, uh, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think like that scale of, of podcasts, if, 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 you know, if I was ever as, as uh, if I had the access to high profile guests of Joe Rogan, fuck yeah. I would do a podcast that is just me asking people who are high profile characters who I find interesting, really deep dive, interesting questions. Um, Sure. Like I I'd do that in a heartbeat, but I think for me now it would be likely other comedians in in a similar sort of mid-tier and it would be you know i (laughs) you know i'm not getting elon musk on my podcast anytime soon
0: have you ever done those like kind of private gigs uh
1: oh yeah corporates yeah dude they're a fucking nightmare (laughs) um corporates are, are rough because uh and and to be fair, not even just corporates. Like occasionally you'll do a town community centre or somebody's birthday or a cricket, uh, cricket clubs. I guess a corporate. Um, but you you do yeah different private gigs. And the problem with that is, um, stand up comedy kind of relies on the audience being an audience, and by that I mean like when they sit there, they are an individual listening to a thing aware that they're sitting in a group. But if everybody in the group is friends or knows each other socially, then all of a sudden they are not a group of individuals. They are one collective. And all of a sudden they want the show to be about them because they're they're aware of the, the power differential. And so, you know... If you do a gig in a community setup, oh, sorry, there's a massive helicopter flying over past. I don't know if that's making it through the recording, but it distracted me. Um, but, no, if you do a gig where where everybody in the audience know each other, there is a change in dynamic that is is really, really obvious and you can feel it. And all of a sudden you'll tell a joke and, like, you know, there is a rhythm to comedy. So you go... Uh, you anybody know about this thing? And you pause because you're about to tell the punchline. And if you do that in a group where everybody knows each other, they won't let you get to the punchline because they they want to be in on the joke at all times. So they'll be like, yeah, that's like Cheryl in accounts. What a fucking idiot. And so you have to change your rhythm to combat that. Um, and even worse in a corporate setting because in a corporate setting, often it's like a conference or, or a team meeting or something. And so... There is a bar, there is food, and there is another event that you're filling time in between. And and what you're taking the time out of is the time that they would be talking to each other. And often, um, yeah, often often not all of them really love that.
0: So why do they keep hiring comedians for those kind of events? Because I hear I've heard this a lot. What you said.
1: <laughs> Why do they keep hiring comedians for these events? That's a good question. I think it is often that... I don't think many places hire a comedian regularly. It's often that they do it once every... however long it takes them to forget the last time they did it. Um, and I think it is often... Something where somebody in HR or whoever's organising the event goes, oh, this will be a nice thing for people. People like comedy, and they don't think about the specifics of how that will play out.
0: Because it would be more suitable if they just hire somebody with a guitar or something, maybe to sing some hits.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, that would be so much easier because because it can exist in the background. Magicians, magicians are fine for that. Like I personally hate magic but I think magicians are fine for that in that if a magician is performing and only 50% of people are paying attention the fact that 50% of people aren't doesn't take away from the 50% that are but with comedy if half the room is talking it kind of ruins the whole thing um so yeah I, I I don't know I will say that I don't particularly want them to stop because as much as it's not the most fun gig, it is the best pain.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And there must be some comedians out there who are like uh, corporate gig experts who like do it excellent every who's like you know, skill themselves to that thing only, you know.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder. I've I've never met one. Um, but I'm I it makes sense. I'm sure they exist.
0: Uh, I'm sure. Also, you could be like uh, an MC at events, so just like drop a, a joke or two, and then introduce something else happening.
1: Oh, em- MC, MCing, MCing, uh corporate is, on the other hand, a great, like a, not a great, but it's a much easier experience than being a comedian. Um, and partly to do with that thing I was talking about with uh Bill Burr's podcast right because if you're an MC and you're not introduced as a comedian and you're just kind of running through the night and then occasionally you're very funny everyone is surprised by that and that's a real big bonus and and so they laugh whereas if you're introduced as a comedian um, also people listen to the MC a slight bit more during a corporate which is which is weird it's the opposite of a normal comedy night but I think people listen to the MC a slight bit more at a corporate event, because they might be saying something about the bar, or they might be saying something about food. So, so you get a moment of their attention, whereas, um, whereas that's not always the case if you're you're the performer.
0: So, when it comes to psychedelics, uh, is it uh, mushrooms you've worked with uh, only, or have you tried any others?
1: So, uh, mushrooms primarily, LSD. You know, a few times. Um, And I don't, I don't, um, I don't have. I I I find LSD fine and nice and enjoyable, and I think I get a lot out of it. I just prefer mushrooms partly because of the um, the shorter trip duration. Um, I I think I I find that a lot more manageable, and and you know you can you can do it in the evening then sober up go to sleep and then feel quite refreshed the next day whereas i find if you you know you take LSD at 11am you go to bed at 2am and the next day you, you still feel quite exhausted from the experience in a way that i don't get with mushrooms
0: yeah LSD you you i, I mean i would never watch films when i take psychedelics but if i did i could watch the lord of the rings trilogy extended edition and still be tripping at after it was over you know it's like yeah
1: exactly i would never go to work on a full acid trip but i could if i did <laughs> if i did i could leave the house get to work go to work work a full day get home cook dinner still be tripping yeah
0: and, and but have have i've always mentioned this to somebody who's tried lsd and mushrooms uh I don't like LSD so much because in my experience, let's see if you've had the same, it's that it uh, doesn't seem to be a voice there. It's like more, uh, I mean, the mushroom is more talkative in a sense. It's hard to explain. Like there's like a, an intelligence there somehow or a presence. I,
1: I, get, I get what you mean. And I have to say that I agree with you. I haven't had that experience on LSD, of the um, that kind of um, that real feeling of, of hearing your own thoughts through a lens that is kind of less recognizable to you. Um, I've not had that w- with LSD, but I will say that I don't think so. I think with M- magic mushrooms. Because I've done it a lot more and the duration is shorter, I've pushed pushed my dosages a lot higher because the worst that happens is is feels more manageable and safe to me. Whereas I I, I I wonder if I took LSD at higher doses if I would experience the same thing you're talking about with mushrooms. And it's just I wonder if it's just that I have not taken enough. Um, I don't know.
0: I. You hinted at something there that's a hot topic in psychedelic circles so is it if you get an insight or wisdom or a perspective or whatever you get from a a mushroom experience you view it as it is your own mind talking back to you or do you imagine it's something else? For
1: me, I've always thought it was, it was my own, I, I guess to, to strip it to, to basic psychology, although who, who knows how much, <laughs> how much this is correct. But for for me, I, I, I think it is, um, it, it is like, I guess the most, the most, uh, simple version of what I actually think. Removed of all the 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 things I have learnt to think because I think that's what people want. I think that is my interpretation of that when I when I have mushrooms.
0: And then um, visually though, do you think? Because uh, I could agree with you on that. The thing that makes it hard sometimes to agree with that is that. I've seen things that I can't imagine. There's no reference point. I can't trace it anywhere. I'm not sure where it's coming from, but it's not something, you know, like I can trace back through my life or anything. It's like completely fresh imagery, you know, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I would agree with that on, on visuals. I guess I've always viewed those two events as, as detached from one another. You know what I mean? Like I, I've always viewed the, the thought process as, as my own and the visuals as I guess the, the, I guess I, I kind of feel like when, when I'm tripping my brain is kind of rather than operating as a holistic team where everything works towards one goal which is keeping me functioning and and keeping me behaving in the way that whatever I have felt I wanted to behave like I feel like then when I'm tripping the different departments of my brain if you will if if it was like a, a team the different members of the team are off doing their own thing and so I view the visuals and the fact that I haven't seen reference for that as though my, my, my visual field and my, 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 um, visual perspective is just rather than having to focus on making sure I don't walk into traffic or, you know, make sure that I can do all these other things. My visual field is, you know, having, having some me time and equally, you know, um, same with sound, same with everything. And, and so, I, I kind of view everything that happens as detached from the other bits.
0: I see. Um, one thing I also um, think is interesting is that it, uh, when you're in a psychedelic experience, uh, everything uh, becomes so full of meaning, even things that are in, nor- in your normal state completely pointless, like everything becomes alive in a sense. And I remember I've done some experiments like uh, uh, one time I decided to because I tr- I wanted to because I often listen to music usually not with lyrics because it c- can be distracting but I wanted to experiment to listen to something that was like empty uh, and uh, you know like something plastic something that could not have any significance and just to see if if we would, um, just to disprove this thing. So I, I listened to uh, Britney Spears, uh, Oops, I Did It Again. And uh, uh, it's hard to explain, but listening to that song while while tripping, suddenly the lyrics completely changed meaning, and I was really shocked that I saw a different perspective of things, and it's it's really hard to explain, but... That's what I love about mushrooms. Like it can turn, even when you're trying to, uh, you know, trick it, it always delivers, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that is fascinating. I would love to see what your experience of that was if you listened to quite a commercial bubblegum pop song in a language you couldn't speak. I wonder if you would have had the same experience because what I will say about both psychedelics and and then a little bit pop culture is that, um, is that I think psychedelics are really great at increasing your empathy. And as you said, as a result of that, everything feels more meaningful, um, but I know, like, one thing that I, I love about tripping, and, and to be fair, this is one thing that I definitely do get from LSD and Magic Mushrooms the same, is that at some point in every trip there will be a moment where I realise I need to apologise to someone. I don't know who it is. Sometimes it's someone from way back in the past. Someone that's, Sometimes it's someone from quite real, recent. But I'll always realise there is at least one person I should apologise with without fail every time, and I think that's fascinating. But on the Britney Spears thing, I think the the thing about pop music is, even if it if it, even if it's not the most uh, sophisticated or dense or or um, nuanced version of emotion, they are still always playing at quite basic, quite relatable human emotions. That's why it's so popular, is because any idiot understands, you know. Any any ind- idiot understands heartbreak. Any idiot understands these things. They're, they're things that are quite easily relatable, even if they're, they're basic versions of the thing. And so I can completely understand how something like, oops, I did it A again, goes from something that felt very two-dimensional to realising that at the core of it, it's a song about, you know, guilt and and, and heartbreak. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but also it can be deeper things because it has lyrics like uh, can't you see I'm a fool in so many ways? And, you know, like if you're tripping, that's like...
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And also, I guess that that's another really interesting thing about it is is that the brain, as I was saying before, kind of does have a mind of its own when you're tripping. And so it can completely disregard context and fixate on the bit that it wants to show you. Um, and and that is that that is something that is is you can't get away from. But again, that's why that's why I think it would be so fascinating to listen to you know um, you know K-pop or uh, popular music that is quite you know cliche and quite would be described as as not emotionally sophisticated but from a in a language where you didn't understand it i think that would be interesting to see what what your brain did with that
0: you've never been attracted to experience uh, ayahuasca ah uh,
1: yes i have i haven't done it yet um or haven't even done DMT yet it is something that I feel like I will do at some point. I just need to get the right combination of opportunity and bravery.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. It's, uh, when the time is right, it's always the best time to do it. Uh, if I would suggest something, I would, of course, suggest that uh, uh, even though the DMT is amazing and that I personally uh, I mean, the ayahuasca is way, way better because it's slower. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just the DMT is so fast. Uh, now you've had experience with mushrooms and that, so it could be helpful. But uh, I actually use... Because when you do ayahuasca ceremonies, uh, you gain so much from it. In my, For me, anyway, way more than mushrooms. It's, it's more like a doctor. Mushrooms can be also just... Uh, just a fun time you know uh, uh, but uh, the ayahuasca is you know it doesn't show any mercy Uh, uh, so um, it breaks you down and builds you up again but uh, you know after a few years passes uh, you it's easy to fall back into your old ways Uh, so then a a hit of DMT is, is like almost going back for a quick recap I. I can't go back in time, so I can't say for sure. I don't know how I would feel about DMT if that's the only thing I did. Maybe... Because I've heard of people who've done DMT once and it changed their life and they never did it again. So uh, I, I, I could see that happening. But I guess it's because I've done the ayahuasca. It's, it's so different um, experience. But uh, I, uh, I always recommend it to people, but they should... Uh, with ayahuasca, it's extremely important you find the right set and setting and the right facilitators. And I wouldn't ever advise anybody to just drink it at home, you know.
1: Yeah, I. Uh, I think yeah, which is, which is I think why I like just the right opportunity and combination of things. Um, I, I think. Also, for at least for my path to it, I think I'd like to take DMT first, just so like I think for me in terms of set, it definitely helps to have a basic framework of roughly what it will be like. Um And so, like for me, when I did magic mushrooms the first time I took them, I took them at, uh, you know. A medium to low dose but like before I, I started taking more um and and definitely that was important to me before I did LSD because I at least wanted to to know what I was getting into roughly before I committed 12 hours or whatever um and similarly with with ayahuasca I think doing DMT first for me will help me just relieve some of that anxiety of like, what if I hate it? And then it's, I'm in it for a lot longer.
0: Yeah. Uh, the thing is, because uh, uh, ayahuasca can last for five hours, but so keep in mind that if when you, if you smoke DMT and you get a really good hit or get quite strong, it won't be that for five hours it it comes it's kind of like the mushroom it goes down and you can have a break and then it comes back so it's not so intense as the DMT is uh and i i, I actually did it i usually do it i only do psychedelics these days once a year and uh, and that's almost too much <laughs> uh but i usually try to do it around easter uh you know like as a crucifixion of myself uh and uh I recently when i did it because uh, uh, it's funny, Terence McKenna once said that psychedelics is the only thing where the more experienced you are, the more nervous you get. <laughs> you know, like it's the opposite of most things. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't have to be like that. But is I uh, I often listen to like these uh, shamanic Icaro songs when I do psychedelics uh, uh, that I've. Uh, Start a relationship with going to the Amazon and hearing them sing those when you do ayahuasca. So they're very important to me. So I usually listen to those while uh, if I do smoke the MT, and it only takes like five minutes and uh, then a 10 minute calm down, I guess you could call it. But it's really only like five minutes. So I usually pick a song that's about five minutes long or two songs that's five minutes Uh, And quite helpful because then I, you know, my theory was that when I'm inside a trip, you know, I'm feeling if it's too much, you know, I can just say, well, this song is two verses away from finishing, Uh, you know, you know, like as a way to be, to feel comfortable or, you know, as a, what do you call it? Like the song is holding my hand, you know, so I know when it's going to be over. The problem is when I. The problem was when I smoked the DMT. After like an hour, I'm thinking, uh, this song is never going to end. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I was gonna say that was. A, if if that did work, I would have thought that was a really great trick because I do think that, that one of the worst things when you have a challenging trip Mm. is exactly that, that, that experience of time feeling so much longer for you than it is in the world. And then, you know, you, you, you rough it out and you're like, I know, you know, you just, you're tripping and you just got to relax and get through it and it'll be fine. And you go, okay, I'll relax and get through it. And you feel like you've relaxed for an hour and you check your phone and it's been two minutes and you're like, fuck, I'm going to be tripping bad forever. And so I thought if your song thing worked, if you could train yourself to know an album, for example, that's like an hour, and then you could measure time in those blocks, that would be super helpful. But unfortunately, as you said, (laughs) your brain still has a way to make you feel the way it wants to make you feel.
0: In fact, I... One thing I realized after over many years is that uh, if you're trying to do anything with time, you just you might you're you're making it worse for yourself. It it, it and it's almost like it knows <laughs> like you're trying to. Uh, so it's the best thing is to. I mean, I always listen to those ikaros, but I but this last time I was trying to use them as this tool. I told you, but uh, it's better to just. Uh, be in the now you know it usually works better um, and uh, I did many years ago I had a nightmare trip with a friend it was actually LSD and my friend, because st- he asked me after a while like how long has it been and I looked at the watch which you should never do uh, and I said oh it's five minutes and for the next four hours the only thing he kept saying was this is five minutes and it's just like in the beginning, it was quite funny, but after a while, he infected my brain, and I was thinking like, "This is never going to end." And basically, we ruined it for ourselves. So, time or watches and all that—you just you don't use it at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think time and and increasingly not just time, but phones in general, um, I I think are a bad idea. Um, and mirrors, obviously. They're the two. And, and, and to that extent, like, generally what I will do now is um, put on a playlist of, like, 4K, um, what do you call them? Like, visual kaleidoscopy type things. Um, but just, like, interesting, quirky, trippy patterns on YouTube. And I'll just put a playlist of them. Um, and I will have that on the TV, not look at my phone, and then you know, whatever I walk around and do and and um our our house has some quite uh distinct wood patterns, so I often just end up finding myself staring at at that <laughs> um and and letting the the visual field play with itself there but um yeah i I, I do think, as you said, like trying to avoid time in particular or or, or, or things that root you in that is is generally a good idea because obviously if it's going bad it makes it feel like a lot longer and if it's going good you don't want the thing that a trip that is going well starts to become an anxious trip because you're worried it will end
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, the way you did it usually did it Uh, you have you ever tried uh, sitting in complete uh, pitch black darkness so
1: with magic mushrooms, uh, so I will say that I've been do- taking a lot more LSE a lot more recently because I find the accessibility and quality of that in the UK a little bit better at this point than, than I have with my mushrooms. Um, with mushrooms, yes, I, I very much... Um, and with that, like for, for about a year, I was doing it once a month. Um, and the whole goal was to get to ego death. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But like it was high quantities and um, no no music, no light, no nothing. Just like um, really go deep and. To be fair, on on some of those occasions, it wouldn't have mattered what was happening around me because I couldn't have physically opened my eyes or moved anyway, even if I wanted to.
0: Have you uh, been open with your like friends and family about this?
1: Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I um. So I, I, like I said at the top, I, I do talk about it in my show that is out. Um. And my parents have seen that a couple times um they they saw it when when the show opened in melbourne and then a couple years ago when i did my first edinburgh run they they came to one of the shows there um so yeah i I think most of my friends and family would have would have learned about it if not through so so my closest friends learned about it before it ever made it to stage because I, i i was very open with them about it um and then my family and my broader network including like my my friends that I work with today my boss that I work with at the moment and in fact three of my last four bosses have seen seen me talking about psychedelics on stage um i do i do think there's value in it and i think particularly until um Medical science has the uh, the the green light from authority to to look into the health benefits of it properly. I think normal people advocating for the therapeutic use of it is is important um, to destigmatize.
0: One thing I find interesting is that in uh, in the West, anyway, it seems uh, that. Uh... It is a white man's substance, which is weird, because the psychedelics really come from indigenous cultures. Th- those are the ones that have used it, or, or brought it, or kept using it, so it remained, and then now we use it. But uh, in this psychedelic renaissance we're in, there's hardly any like non-white voices, and it's very, very rare that I go to a s- like a ceremony or an ayahuasca uh, place and there's not white only white people there and uh, uh, I find that a bit annoying because usually the poor people are usually the non-whites I mean there's poor white people also of course but you know like the the communities that are having a hard time are usually not white people and uh, they could probably use it more you know
1: yeah, I I don't know. I, I I imagine that's like a super complicated thing to unpick. So I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know how much of of that is. So I I do think there is a particularly modern bougie thing about it. Like, you know, the whole microdosing culture of Silicon Valley and like you said, quite expensive uh Peruvian ayahuasca trips to to uh discover yourself. So I do think that that psychedelics have been um whipped up in quite a young bougie cult um, that I I don't know how to put it. I, I think there is value. I, I see value in more people trying it and, and learning for themselves. Although I don't think it should be something that people do to tick off a, a wellness exercise because they saw their fam- favorite Instagrammer do it. Because um, I, I do think the risks are, are higher if you don't, um, if you don't come into it with the right knowledge and mindset, and and and, um, you know, it, it, you know, a bad trip can be horrible for people and turn them off. And so, if, if you learn about it the wrong way and you do it for the wrong reasons, your chance of having a bad trip, and not fully understanding why and not feeling like it's worth it, are higher. So, I, I, I see that. I also, I also wonder, like, you know. A.S.A.P. Rocky is 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 quite a vocal advocate of psychedelics, off the top of my head. Um, and I do wonder if if part of the problem with white voices in the community is um, is the bougie thing that I was talking about, and then another part is just that you know uh, <laughs> the, the, the societal um, frameworks that mean that. White people are more likely to have access to time and confidence and platforms to be heard.
0: And I, but I do recommend people to go and do it with indigenous people, but you can do it in different ways, you know. Of course, one thing that annoys me a bit sometimes, especially, I get a lot of requests uh, for people wanting to be on the podcast, and there's a certain type of Request I often get that I always uh, decline, and it's 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 a white person who has been on some course or for a few weeks, and uh, they usually call themselves a shaman, uh, and I always go no no no. Uh, uh, I I did interview one guy once who was like that, and I the only reason I allowed him was because. He had lived for 30 years in Peru, studying studying under the same uh, uh, shaman there. And uh, so the level of dedication was, like, proper. And he didn't call himself a shaman, but others did. So I said, all right, you're fine. But <laughs> anything less than that, I can't take it seriously, you know. Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I think... Um... Again, there is a degree to, of, of respect about it, right? Like, it is quite a, a loaded and powerful term, and you don't just get that status because you you did a four week course. Um, it's 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 kind of like you know, I, I remember in the early two thousands where all my friends went and did a short course on in fitness, and they were all personal trainers, and it was like, you know. A lot of you have not been in a gym, so I don't know if you are <laughs> able to say that. And it's, it's the same sort of principle, but with, with more loaded and, and meaningful language.
0: So, uh, But if people want to check out your comedy or if you have any website, can you tell a bit about those sites?
1: Sorry. Uh, so my comedy. Um, so there's, there's a few things. Um, you can look Anthony Genot on Facebook. I'm I'm slowly putting... Uh, some of the recorded video clips from the album recording on there. Um, so if you're a video person who wants sort of short chunks, Anthony Geno on Facebook, best place to, to find them. Or if you like um, longer form storytelling comedy, the full album, which is which is a full story um, from start to finish, is on Spotify. Again, Anthony Geno.com. It is called Stand Up Comedy Album because I wanted to hack the Spotify search algorithm.
0: Um, Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks for the chat. I've really enjoyed it. Take care. Check out Anthony Geno's Stand Up Comedy Album on Spotify. And you can also search his name on YouTube and social media. I'll also provide links in the program notes uh, as usual. Um, Now, I've had a little tradition this year of releasing a new episode on a special day of the year. If you've been paying attention, uh, I haven't really said what today's day is. And maybe it doesn't matter, because the chance that you are listening to this on the very day this episode is released is pretty slim. Nonetheless, I enjoy adding a special vibe to each episode, and this one is no different. Many years ago, something important took place on this day, the 28th of August. And what took place has been recorded, and I'm sure most of you will recognize this recording. The recording has been remixed by Matt Werner, uh, adding some well-known music. Is the suspense killing you yet? Well, what I'm about to close this episode with is a very important speech that is still relevant today set the music that should inspire you further at least that is my hope listen enjoy and remember freedom is in the mind i go back to the south not with a feeling that we are caught
2: in a dog dungeon that will never lead to a way out i go back believing that the new day is coming so this afternoon i have a dream It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day, right down in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to live together as brothers. I have a dream this afternoon. That one day, one day, little white. Children and little Negro children would be able to join hands as brothers and sisters. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day, men will no longer burn down houses in the church of God simply because people want to be free. I have a dream this afternoon that there will be a day that we will not we will no longer face the atrocities that Emmett Till had to face, or Maca Evers had to face, that all men can live with dignity. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children, that my four little children will not